0: Amen. Take your copy of the Holy Scripture this morning, if you will, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know, somebody once asked me what my favorite verse was, what my favorite scripture was in the Bible. And I know this sounds like an out, but I'm just going to tell you, my favorite scripture of the Bible is the scripture I'm reading or studying at the moment. I know that sounds crazy. But it is amazing how, like, all of God's Word can speak to us in so many different ways. And especially as you dig into it, especially as you study it. And, you know, for me, as I've been working through the life of David these last few Sundays, and even to the proclamation that David and his family gave rise to the Messiah, gave us Jesus himself, what an exciting moment to be able to study through those passages and see how our God has worked redemptively. But even as we look at dark passages, and there are some dark, difficult passages of the Scripture. I mean, Scriptures that are tough for us to reckon with. We almost feel our emotion involved with those characters who are living out these real-life events we begin, we begin to sense, even in those difficult passages, though, how God redeems and how God leads. And maybe, listen, maybe how God warns us. I want to look at this scripture today. And it is a scripture that is so well known to most of us, at least the event itself. Someone has said that outside of the sin of Adam and Eve, more has been written, more has been discussed about the sin of David than any other sin in history. And certainly we know that the sin of David that is recorded here in chapter 11 or the sins of David, they are very evident for us today. But I believe in this dark, difficult moment of David's life, God brings to us light so that we can see how we should live and how we should hopefully, hopefully prevent some of these things from coming into our lives as well. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened. One evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house you know, I say to you that these dark, difficult passages teach us. Now, I will tell you that I am grateful that my sin has not been put on parade for all of the world to know. Aren't you? I mean, think about this just a moment. We we see David and we, we're going to get into how he, he steps into darkness, how he walks into darkness. We're going to talk about that, but listen to this. Here is David's sin In public view of everyone who will read this scripture, it's been recorded for us, It again, as one of the most popular ideas or popular sins that we see throughout all of history. And yet, when we look at his life, we know that David just didn't get there. there. There had to be a journey. There had to be steps. Most of the time, listen to me this morning, most of the time when we step into darkness we recognize that we've been on a journey before we even got to this moment of decision. That there are moments where we have intentionally or unintentionally taken steps toward the darkness before we can even step into the darkness. And that's what I want you to see today. And I believe, listen, I believe that God can use this message to really get a hold of some of us in this place. And hopefully and prayerfully transform our lives as we think through it. Because today, many of us are at different seasons, we're at different moments, and we are on a journey. And unfortunately, if we're not careful, we can step into darkness if we don't change our direction beforehand. So I want to show you the progression David made and the steps that he had made. Notice before he stepped into darkness, I believe that he had stepped away. And let me try to explain what I'm going to say this morning about his Stepping away. Verse one tells us that this is a moment of of battle, and and we're not surprised. When we open the Old Testament, a lot of times we will see different wars, different battles going on. The Israelites are taking on enemies, and they're trying to guard their territorial integrity. We know those things happen. So when we just open chapter eleven here, it just seems like another one of these narratives. It's another battle that's happening. Okay, they've got to go and fight the Ammonites. Now, you realize the Ammonites are the long-lost cousins of the Israelites. If you go back to Genesis, you can see that they are very, very, very distant cousins. You probably fight with your cousins every now and then, right? Or thought about it. They're very distant cousins. The Ammonites live to the east of Israel. And throughout the history of the two, they will war back and forth. Once again, you just are introduced to this battle that has come. In chapter 10, actually, it tells us that the Israelites beat the Ammonites back and basically had made them retreat to the city of Rabbah. And now, after some interlude, after the winter, the spring comes. And the Bible says that it is in the springtime, that it is good to make war. It is good to go into battle. Why? Because usually it's better weather, right? I say usually. (laughs) I see some of you, you put on your Easter stuff last week and you put it back up this week. Now you have reverted back to winter. I understand. Sometimes you just got to be practical not worried about fashion whatsoever. You know, you just got to go heavy coats. I was kind of like that this morning. I just, and then I said, you know what? I'm going to proclaim. I hate to say I'm one of these name it claim. I'm really not, but I'm just going to say I'm naming this spring and I'm claiming it spring, you know? But the people go out because spring is a good time. The weather is better. There's, you don't have quite the rain. The troops, they can be supplied in the fields because the crops are beginning to grow. So they don't have to worry about all these different resources coming to them. They can just resupply themselves as they're out. So the scripture says that the Israelites go out and they go around this rubah. They're going to see, lay a siege to this city. The Ammonites will come out, try to battle them. But again, they will be... Push back into the city, and a siege will be laid. And thus we're told, Joab and the army of Israel have encircled Rabbah, and they are bringing to an end this Ammonite threat. But note this, David is not there with them. Now, I have read different scholars and different... Commentaries about how, well, you know, David didn't necessarily have to be there with him. He was the king at this point. He had gained his reputation. He could just send his army out. And you'll note in Scripture, sometimes the soldiers even begged him not to come into battle. They didn't want him to be injured or captured. They did not want him to be killed because he was so prized. So maybe it was okay for him not to go into battle. But verse 1 says, again, at the time when kings go out to battle, there is one king that stays home. And I'm like Chuck Swindoll in the sense that I believe that David should have been in the battle, not in bed. And because of that, because he had decided that he would not go into battle, he was there in his bed resting Basking in his fame. There are two issues for me as I think about this idea of stepping away. Is that David had stepped away from his purpose and his responsibility. And I believe he had stepped away from his dependence upon God. I mean, one of the reasons David did not have to go into battle now is because because he was so highly valued he had been there he had done that he had led the battles he had led the war and now he was the king he could stay there in his royal palace and he could send everybody else into battle and the two problems then that arise he steps away from his responsibility and purpose To lead the people of Israel and he steps away from his dependence upon God. You see, usually before we get to that moment of this great sin in our life, it is preceded by other steps in our lives. In other words, a lot of times we have stepped away from our true responsibility and purpose. A lot of times we have stepped away from our dependence upon God. Let me give you this this morning. Listen to me. It is much easier to keep your mind off sin if you keep your mind preoccupied with service. That is, if you can make sure that you are training your mind to be about the purpose of God, to be about service, to be about the kingdom of God, if you can train your mind to do that, it is much more difficult for you to seek out sin or allow sin to crowd it out. Oh, how I think we need to hear that once again. Because there are some people in this room who have ceded their responsibility and their purpose before God. They have ceded, guys, listen to me. Some of us have ceded the leadership of our family to everybody else around. We have given our family over to the world to raise. We are not fulfilling our spiritual leadership. And when you do not fulfill your purpose and your responsibility. It is much easier for you to fall in to sin and its temptations. It is so important for us to fulfill God's work, his kingdom purposes in our lives. When we have a time of leisure and listen, I enjoy leisure like anybody. I enjoy rest. But if we're not careful a time of leisure can be transformed into a time of immorality in our lives We must be about the work of christ daily There was an old song we used to sing let's work till jesus comes That we are constantly focused upon god's priority and god's purpose and god's kingdom David had said you know what i'm king now And I know, I know, people have begged me not to go and others. I'm going to go ahead and let others do this. And he stepped away from his responsibility, his success. Success can do bad things to us. Did you hear me this morning? Success can do bad things to us. Now, I'm not praying that you are unsuccessful in your life. Or maybe I'll start praying that, okay? I didn't get an amen out of you. I don't pray that God would make you unsuccessful necessarily. But I have read and read how especially men, success and failure can do bad things. It's one of those reasons sometimes we just pray, God, give me what I need today. God, give me my daily bread. God, because I know that wild success can end up leading me to places I don't want to go. David was wildly successful. He is at the peak, the pinnacle of his success. I believe he's around 50 years old, 50 plus maybe. He's been the king for some time. He has brought together all of his alliances. He's already proven himself. Listen, this is the same man that they were singing about years before, Of killing tens of thousands. And through the years. He had led them into battle. He had achieved greatness. He was a a successful man. Success does bad things to us. Because when we are successful. We forget sometimes who brought the success. We begin to see how we have accomplished certain things. In our lives And we let our devotion to God and our perhaps our guard against sin down. My heart is always broken when you hear those who have fallen in to sin, especially in such a public manner. Just in the last couple of weeks, some of you who keep up with Southern Baptist life and work. A man who I still believe, uh, a man of God, a a great man who has led the Southern Baptist Convention over these last few years and brought a lot of unity, spoken in some very positive, wonderful ways in leadership. He announced his resignation and retirement at the age of 65. But he did not retire for his age, according to his own confession. It was a personal matter of integrity an inappropriate relationship that was in his life that had driven him to this point. Folks, I can't tell you how many times I looked at Leslie and said, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. How tough it has been. And I did not know him personally, but just the respect from afar. But understand that in the moment of success... In the moment when we find ourselves on top, that is the moment when Satan will do everything he can to target us, put a bullseye upon our back, and come after us with everything that he has. It is the reason we must be careful about stepping away. We must be careful. We must say we will fulfill the purpose and we will depend upon God. Because before we get to these other steps, first we step away. From the nurturing side of God. And we step towards sin. That is a second step, right? We step away and we step toward. Again, it says it happened one evening. Look verse 2. It's just almost nonchalantly given to us that it happened one evening that David rose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. So again, you're trying to imagine this. Seen, there is a palace and obviously the second story or so up toward the top of the palace you would have had the royal chambers because there would have been a great ventilation system, right? I mean all the all the cool air. This morning I was thinking about that. Uh, we went up I went up to get the kids up out of bed and they usually shut their doors. Uh, you know and everything we had heat on downstairs. I walked into their room this morning whoa I'm so proud that they had blankets and quilts and covers and everything else around because I thought to myself, how did they make it through the night? Well, the second floor, the royal chambers would have been very well ventilated, especially in the Middle Eastern culture. And here David would have been. He would have been walking out like on a portico and supposedly and, and, and really... Uh, he would have had his house built upon the highest point of the city at the time. So when he walks out, he's taking this little stroll. He looks down and he sees this woman. And the scripture says that she was very beautiful. Scripture does not waste words. If she was beautiful, she was awesome. She was pretty. She was She was a grade A woman. Miss America type, okay? And his heart was bent. The inclination of his heart was bent toward an inappropriate relationship with her. But again, understand he had already taken a step toward this decision in his life. Go back and look at David's life. You'll find out in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, that he had a host of wives and concubines. In other words, David had already assimilated this harem to himself. Already he had done that. Later on, Solomon, unfortunately, will learn this devastating practice. And the scripture will say... That Solomon will will have seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines, a thousand women. Can you imagine? I love you, ladies. But a thousand women. I know Solomon's supposed to be the wisest man to ever lived, but obviously he missed that one. All right. <laughs> David had already been bent toward inappropriate relationships. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, God had specifically said that the king will not multiply wives unto himself. God had said that. Some people say, well, that was just the culture of the day. Listen, God allows a lot of stuff to happen in culture, but he never sanctions things that are ungodly. And he had never sanctioned this polygamy in David's life. As a matter of fact, he had forbidden it. But as the marriages grew and more women were added to the harem, David's sexual appetite was not satisfied. Rather, his libido increased because he was bent toward this sin. You take a guy with limitless sensual desires, you give him a lonely night to peer into the home of another woman, And you can see disaster written everywhere. And guys, ladies, that lonely night when you're clicking on the Internet, that lonely night when you are sending a message to your old high school flame on Facebook, let me tell you, you are setting yourself up for devastation and disaster. You are stepping towards something that you never would have thought you would have done. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Temptation, says this In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is, in, is kindled within, the flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. And only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not... Here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness for God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of the man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? And is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me here in my particular situation to appease desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command. Flee. Flee the lust of the world. Flee youthful lust. Flee idolatry. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against lust is one's own strength. One's own strength is doomed to failure when that is all that we have. Someone has said it is easier to avoid temptation than resist temptation. And I believe that. It is easier to avoid temptation than resist temptation. My high school Bible teacher said it like this. If you don't stand next to the tree, you won't eat from the tree. He said, ladies and gentlemen, you always remember that. When you look back at Genesis, you ask yourself the question, why were they standing next to the tree? There were so many other trees. But somehow they're standing next to that tree where they can reach and touch that which is forbidden. We need to plan for purity in our lives. Look, David should have known he was going to see into people's homes. David should have known... Some say Bathsheba should not have been where she was. Listen, everybody could learn from this experience. But David should have known that when he took this lonely walk, that he may see things. and He should have protected himself. Planned for purity. Isn't it amazing that one of our politicians recently said that he would not have lunch with a woman by himself and yet all of all of the media and all of the structures we see began to denounce his plan and speak against him. Why would you do that? You're lessening the equality. No, you're not. You are protecting yourself. You must plan for purity. For me personally, just recently, the last few months, I decided I'm putting a window in my office. Door, my office door. I got a window in my office. I finally... Got promoted up there where I did, you know, but I went to my office door. I tried to sit on here in this position where people can see me when they come down that hall. We must plan for purity. I'm not saying to you that is all that I need to do. I need to do other things. You need to do other things. Plan for purity. And when that sin comes, listen to what listen to what Bonhoeffer says when the temptation comes. When it comes, flee. I coined the term the gingerbread man philosophy or theology Now I know some of you are like I fear that's about all the theology you got in life <laughs> I thought about it years ago with my kids they would have this big day down in Zachary at school And they would try to hunt and find the gingerbread man and they would run around and you've heard it like You know, I'm the ginger- you know, it's 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 like run run as fast as you can You can't catch me because I'm the gingerbread man, right? Listen, I know that sounds silly, but when temptation comes, you need to run. You need to run. You need to get away. You need to employ the gingerbread man philosophy of life. You need to go. Because, because, if you step toward You are just one more step until you are into the darkness. You may step away, you may step toward, but if you do not run, you will step into the darkness. Verse 3 said, So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David said, Hey, who's this lady? And this servant. Sounds the alarm of conviction in David's life, but David will not hear Hey, it, it, this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite In other words, first of all, you don't forget that this woman is the daughter of somebody and is the wife of somebody She is not some object. She is a person And don't forget she has made marital vows This servant is sounding the alarm. It is a subtle scream to David. Do not do this. And I will tell you over and over, you will hear hear those subtle screams in your life. Do not do this. Listen to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do not cross that line. David, unfortunately, sent messengers, took her. She came to him. He lay with her. She was cleansed from her impurity. She returned to her house. He stepped into darkness. And the woman conceived, obviously, a natural consequence of the physical act. So she sinned and told David and said, I'm a child. I'm pregnant. Now, David's at a point now does he confess? Does he repent? Understand that adultery carries with it the penalty of death. But surely, David will be forgiven. We know this. David can and still will be forgiven by God. If he will confess and repent. Because even when you step into darkness, thanks be to him, there is grace. That he still calls us and he redeems us and he brings us back. If we will simply confess and repent. We'll talk more about that next week but how wonderful the mercy of grace is. But instead of stepping back toward God, David steps even farther into darkness, even farther. I want to read this narrative as we conclude here. Just read through these verses with me, if you will. Verse six, David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent Uriah to David. So David comes up with a plan. Bring Uriah home. Some 40 miles, Uriah will have to march back to Jerusalem. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. Just small talk. And I bet Uriah thought to himself, why did David call me back for this? Remember, Uriah was one of the 30, one of the most elite soldiers David had. And he's calling him out about it for a report. Verse 8, And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet, your your home. Wash up, clean up, go down to your house, enjoy the hospitality of Jerusalem. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So when David told, was, they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? See, David's got this idea. All you got to do is go home and see your wife and you know, the cover up will be complete. Nobody will ever know. But Uriah was a man of integrity. Listen to his words. Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and... And Israel and Judah were dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. Because maybe he could get him liquored up. Maybe get, get him inebriated so that he will go back home. It is interesting. Now, this is to a side. and I don't have many sides here because I got to get through. But a side is that the whole existence of the Ammonites came about because there was one man named Lot who was drunk and did things he should not have done. Very ironic now that David would use that same type of ploy in this context. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. If David had only gone to the Lord. If he had only written out his confession to God. If he had only sought him, but what did he do? David says, I have no other option. I' got to cover this up. David, the man after God's own heart, he is at the place of murdering one of his most faithful soldiers. Don't you ever doubt this? When you begin this journey and you take it step by step, you will end up in places you never thought you would have been. David sent a letter: a death warrant by the one who would be sacrificed or killed. And he wrote in a letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. Retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. In other words, when you're laying siege to the city, you get him real close to the wall. This is going to be so easy. They're shooting down from the wall. Just get him up there. Y'all move back. Make sure he dies. And so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out, fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Because get this, not only did David's sin affect Uriah and kill him, it affected other people. Other people were killed because of David. Don't miss this. And then Joab sinned and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the king, the war to the king, He says, if it happens, the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? In verse 21, he says, you just tell them that your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. What? That will excuse everything. This messenger must have thought, what is this about? The messenger goes back, tells David, and then in verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So he encouraged him. Do you see how defiled his conscience had become? He just played it off. Man, everything had gone to plan. Because he just stepped farther into darkness. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband... And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. How magnanimous of the king. He was just taking care of the widow. That's what everybody thought. Look at David. This wonderful, reputable man of integrity. But what they had not known is he had been on a journey. He had stepped away from his responsibility and his purpose. He had allowed success to blind him. He had stepped toward darkness and then he full-fledged stepped into darkness. And instead of confessing and committing himself to Christ, he began to step farther and farther and destruction and devastation. But don't forget this. We'll talk about this next week, but don't forget this. At the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord because the Lord knew what had happened and friends this morning I say to you you and I we're on different parts of this journey maybe maybe we're at the beginning maybe we're fulfilling the purpose but there's a temptation to step away would you hear me would you hear God's word would you hear the Holy Spirit that will squeeze that will convict your heart right now and just say Keep fulfilling the purpose. Don't allow success to blind you. You work for the kingdom. Or maybe you've already kind of moved there and you're, you're just, you're stepping toward it. You, you can feel temptation is coming. Run, flee. Turn around as the power of God gives you strength. Run. You've already stepped into darkness. As I said, thanks be to God, you can know grace and forgiveness in your life. You know what? Jesus came to die for sinners. That means you and me. Those of us who had messed up, who had stepped into darkness. He still gives forgiveness to people's hearts and lives. Or maybe right now you say, I'm just so far into it, there's no hope. I've just made my decision, and I've gone, and there's no coming back. Oh, yes, there is. Listen, as long as there's breath in your body, God's Holy Spirit will still convict you here on this earth and will bring you back. You've never gone too far that the grace of God cannot find you. Would you hear? Would you commit? Would you come back? Would you stop this journey into the darkness? Let's pray. Father, I come and I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially right now. Those who are here in this sanctuary, those who are there in the gathering. And God, nobody else may know what's going on. Not one other soul here in this church, in this community. But God, we know that you know. You've seen the progression. You've seen us take step by step away. God, I pray you'd convict us. God, we pray that in this place you'd get so a hold of us that we would once again commit ourselves to pure purity and holiness in our lives. And that, Father, we would see forgiveness come. God, we need a fresh falling of your spirit in this place. We need conviction in our hearts. One that can't be manufactured by a preacher or staff member or Sunday school teacher, but a true conviction that comes from you. God, speak to us this morning. Help us to bow to our knees and confess our sins. Help us this morning to be determined to run. And, Lord, in the end, we'll praise you for the glory. We'll praise you for your forgiveness. We'll praise you for who you are. As we ask it in the powerful, redeeming, grace-filled name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Would you stand?